And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Bring back V10 Series 6 is here, and we're kicking things off with a monster of an episode. In 1993, two of the most famous names in motorsport, McLaren and Andretti, teamed up for what was supposed to be something very special. Michael Andretti, IndyCar superstar and son of 1978 F1 world champion Mario, crossed the Atlantic to try his hand at F1 with one of the best teams in the business. But what sounded like a recipe for success quickly turned into a nightmare and Andretti's F1 career lasted only 13 races before he was booted out straight after taking his only podium of the season. There is so much to get into with this story including an incredible accusation Andretti has made about why it didn't work out for him in F1. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to get into this in great detail are Ed Straw, and I'm delighted to welcome back David Tremaine to offer his first-hand perspective on witnessing Andretti's short time in F1. So David, great to have you on again. Thanks for coming back to bring back V10s and helping us kick off Series 6. So you can take the traditional opening question for the first time this series, when you think of Michael Andretti's 1993 F1 season, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The real Michael Andretti didn't turn up. That's my honest belief um, for a number of reasons. But Michael was never in a position to show what he really could do. Yeah, I, I, there's, there's going to be so much to explore and it's going to be interesting because obviously you were, you were there and I think all three of us have an appreciation of Michael Andretti, the IndyCar driver. So we'll try and get to the bottom of, of what Michael Andretti, the F1 driver, really was. Now, Ed, good to have you along for the start of another series. You recently interviewed Mario Andretti about this, so we'll hear some clips from that later on. What's your standout memory from Michael's brief F1 career? It's actually just the very start of it at Kyle Army when he didn't get off the dummy grid. Then when he did finally get going a few laps down, he ended up cruising back to the pits with three wheels on his wagon after hitting Derek Warwick's footwork. There was a bit of a in incident with Bob Atzer spinning and uh, the footwork checked up. So uh, a bit unlucky there. But it, it almost stands as a metaphor for Andretti's whole F1 career. As uh, as David said, that the real Andretti didn't turn up and it's like the whole thing never really got off the ground. That it, it was just summed up in that image of him not getting off the, off the line in Kyle Army. A new series means a first chance in a while to read out some five-star reviews from Apple Podcasts. So thank you to everyone who's been catching up with our first five series while we've been away, including ZMA123987, Muk Tenor, Consolo, Photo Little and Clio Sports Stew. Thank you to everyone who sends us a five-star review and I'm sorry we don't manage to, to read them all out. As always, we'll be taking your questions at the end of the series. So if you want to ask us anything about the V10 era, you can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And if you'd like to get early access to ad-free versions of the show, 
plus bonus content and your own special chance to ask questions for an exclusive episode, then check out the Race Members Club. To find out about all the other benefits of being a member and to sign up, head to theracecom forward slash members club. But now let's get on with Michael Andretti and McLaren. Michael hasn't talked about this much over the years, which might not surprise you. And our attempts to put a few questions to him for this episode did come to nothing in the end. But he gave a brilliant interview about this to, of all places, the McLaren website in 2018. And that's something we'll come back to plenty of times through this episode. Michael said the interest from McLaren for 1993 came about after he won the 1991 IndyCar title. And even before then, he'd already tested for the team. But it was in late 91 that Ron Dennis said he wanted him for 93. So, David, given the family history in F1 and what a hot property Michael was in America, do you think he was always destined to end up trying his hand at F1 at some point? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think probably the answer is yes. Um, the other thing I would say about that era, you had Michael and Al Unser Jr. And there was a lot of interest and a lot of talk about both of them coming F1. And it seemed exactly the right thing for each of them to do. They were both getting really successful back home. Um, Michael was... I mean, we regarded Michael as the centre of IndyCar. I remember watching him at Milwaukee in um, 91 and at Indy in 91. He was absolutely flying. And he would just scythe through traffic the way Ayrton did. And he had almost that same, you know, instead of the yellow helmet in the mirrors, it was the silver one. And Al was kind of, if you like, more like the Prost of IndyCars. But Michael was so aggressive that you think, yes, it's the logical thing for him to come Formula One. Now, beyond that McLaren interview, uh, one of the only other times he's reflected on this in any depth was for the Marshall Pruitt podcast, which I'd recommend everyone checks out. In that, Michael said that when it was time to sign the McLaren deal during 1992, he was having doubts, mainly because he knew how good the Newman Haas Lola package he was giving up in America was going to be. Andretti said that he raised those doubts with his dad, Mario, saying, I don't know, I could stay here and rack up a record because next year we're going to win literally every race. And he said Mario told him he'd be crazy not to go to F1. And Michael said that was the last time he took any career advice from his dad. Ed, do you think Michael had to give it a shot in F1 at some point? Well, he could very easily have stayed in cart, couldn't he? And he probably would have won the 93 title, given how good that package was. The impression I have is that Michael didn't really feel he had to, certainly not for himself. It's almost as if there was an expectation that as an Andretti, he had to do it. And that was actually quite a big thing of, in his career. It was his anointed destiny to be a successful racing Andretti. And that was very positive for his career in, in the US. But I, I just don't get the impression that he personally had that burning desire to do F1. And that probably played a part in what happened. And the fact that he almost had these second thoughts and Mario seemed to push him a little bit just makes me wonder whether it it was the right decision for him, for him at that time. So I don't think he had to. No, I just don't think he did. So Michael did sign, but he initially thought he was signing up to drive a McLaren with a different engine to the customer Ford V8s the team ended up with for 1993. Michael said in his 2018 McLaren interview that after he signed the contract, McLaren lost a deal it thought it had with Renault. 
It's not entirely clear how close McLaren got to landing the Renault engines, but this has been claimed by the team independently in the past. In a Heritage article about McLaren, uh, about McLaren's 1993 car, the team said Ron Dennis had tried very hard to secure a deal with Renault and even considered buying Ligier in order to obtain its Renault engines. And that was a rumour that we've seen reported in late 1992. McLaren would naturally have wanted to use Shell fuel and lubricants and ultimately this proved a stumbling block with Renault's sponsor, Elf. So David, how different would McLaren's and therefore Andretti's season have looked if that MP4-8 in 93 had been powered by the best engine in F1? Just before I answer that, I would say one point. The, the deal was signed in Bloomfield Hills in September 92 which is very close to Ford's headquarters. So I don't think that would have been a mistake. Um, I think by then they were well aware they weren't going to have um, the Renault engines. Um, that was definitely what Ron tried to do, because for sure that rumour of him considering buying Ligier was true. Um, I think it would, if they kept the Honda engine, of course, I think they'd have been very strong, even though Honda privately admitted they wished they'd never made the V12 that they replaced the V10 with. Um, <clears throat> had they had the Renault, that would have been a very strong package. Because what you have to remember is by going forward, McLaren ended up as Ford's number two team. And although there was talk of parity to begin with, um, they never got, but I think it took a long time before they got parity with, with Benetton who, of course, was was the works team. So, yeah, it was a compromise thing from the minute Michael got in the 93 car. It was a compromise, and I think if they'd had a Renault engine, he might have had a much better time. Now, throughout January of 93, McLaren kept delaying the official announcement of its 1993 plans, although Ron Dennis assured the media everything was in place. However, the uncertainty around the engine meant that the design of the car had to start without the team knowing which engine it would be using. And the late arrangement of the Ford deal meant the car wasn't ready to run until mid-February. Michael said in 2018 that he got 1.5 days of testing in the new car before the season started. He said, the engine change hurt me because we couldn't start testing until late. Before we even got going, things were stacked against us. So Ed, this late start for Michael, how much of a setback would that be for a new driver coming into a top team where you're going to have instant pressure. Yeah, definitely. The lack of testing in the MP4-8 was probably the biggest single problem for Andretti. You have to remember this was at a time when F1 cars are becoming super specialised, active suspension, traction control, ABS. And we know how difficult that could be even for experienced F1 drivers. The, the Patrese-Mansell comparison at Williams, where Patrese was giving Mansell a hard time in the passive car, but then was nowhere near in the active car in 92, illustrates that. And if you remember... Andretti got some mileage in the 92 car, but the, the 92, although there was an active suspension program, it wasn't really fully race ready and, and fully up and running. So the 92 car wasn't optimised around it. So that wouldn't have given him that full opportunity to acclimatise to it. It's a big step from a fairly conventional indie car to a more precise, gizmo-laden modern F1 car. So for any driver, the preparation's far from ideal, let alone for someone coming in completely cold to Formula One, up against Senna in a, in a top team. So that, that I think, is probably the thing that, that, if you could go back and change, could have the biggest impact on how Andretti's career went. If I can intervene here, I, I did an interview with Michael in mid-'93, and we, we talked about 
stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> he said when he drove the MB47A, it shook his confidence because he tried pushing the car too much and found that the harder you pushed it, if you didn't get the the um, sort of technique down pat, you ended up going slower. And he said, um, when I was driving the MP48 passively in initial testing, it wasn't good. Once I got it in active state, I started to get all kinds of confidence. But at the start of the, dry, uh, of the year, in driving terms, I didn't do a lot of running. It was a lot less than I normally like to do. I had a lot of days when I saw Silverstone in the dead of winter. Definitely hurt me a lot because I really only did a day and a half all through. The shorter um, than expected practice sessions didn't help initially either, nor the restriction on how many laps you could do. So, yeah, I mean, right from the start, he was compromised. He had tested in um, Estoril in 91 and then Barcelona in December 92. And he and Mark Blundell were pretty much equal in the Barcelona test, but Marky was more consistent and had a neck strain from something. And Michael ended up with a 21.7 best to Marky's 21.9. And I remember talking to the team about what they thought of him then. And the quote was, he took to it like a duck to water. If you can drive, you can drive and he can drive. So... With the, um, he was getting on with the program by the end of 92, but that certainly, those restrictions made it about as difficult as it could be for a rookie, particularly one who had no experience of active cars. That was a big technique to sort of pick up on and to believe that the car would do what it was supposed to do. Um, you know, look at what Ricardo had the trouble with, with Williams once. Um, he was very quick in the passive FW14 in 91, if you remember. And then once Nigel got his hands on the active car, it was game over for Ricardo. Ed mentioned Senna there as Andretti's teammate. Now, this was a saga going on in the background in early 93 at McLaren. As we talked about in the past, uh, Senna became disillusioned with F1 during 1992, particularly once his attempts to force his way into Williams were blocked by Alain Prost. But after a winter of leaving McLaren and F1 hanging and, of course, testing an IndyCar, Senna decided a week before the first race of the year in South Africa that he would race. But at the time, it was only for the season opener. Until that point, Mika Hakkinen had been on the entry lists as Andretti's teammate, but Senna's return meant Hakkinen would spend the year on the sidelines as test driver. So for the first time in this episode, let's hear from Mario Andretti, who Ed recently interviewed for us. This is what Mario said about the impact of Senna deciding to stay. The first factor was that uh, Michael was supposed to substitute uh, Ayrton. Ayrton was going to Williams. And, uh, and they, <clears throat> Ron Dennis hired uh, Mika Hakkinen from, from uh, Lotus, I think, basically for free. And um, all of a sudden uh, the deal didn't go through, so Ron Dennis was stuck with two high-dollar drivers, and he had one there for free. So who was going to take the fall? It was Michael. So David... Was Michael ultimately doomed, do you think, once Senna decided to stay? In a way, I tend not to think that initially. 
Um, I think if he hadn't had all those accidents to begin with, it might have been different. I mean, obviously, Ron wasn't going to squander Mika. But I think let's just look at the Senna situation because basically it's actually quite funny. Um, <clears throat> I was talking to Jos Capito and a couple of people at the weekend about the proposed driver salary cap. And they all basically reiterate what Ron was telling his drivers back in 93, that um, he actually said to her, and this is all I'm going to pay you. This is, this is it. Because otherwise we're not going to have any money to develop the car. And you have to see that the more we put in the development of the car, the better the car is, the more you'll win. So they came up with a plan, which basically was, if you want any more money, it's going to have to come from the sponsors. Now, much later in the year, we had a very interesting, completely off the record, fantastic lunch with Ron, a whole bunch of us, down at McLaren. <clears throat> and for Ron to trust the media like that was a big step. And one of our number, um, rather naively called TV Globo, and said, oh gosh, did you know that's why this has all been dragging on Willy Wonty? It's all part of a, a game plan to sort of squeeze the money from the sponsors. And that made Ron completely explode, because of course Globo, once they knew that, wasn't going to sit on it, so the story got out. But that is one of the reasons why it appeared like Ayrton was well, he's, he's going to retire, he's not going to do anything, was that it was a game that he and Ron were having to play to get the money to satisfy Ayrton's demands, but not from McLaren. And certainly all of that unsettled the team, and it didn't make life any easier for Michael trying to um, graduate to Formula One. So yeah, it was an uneasy background politically anyway, on the engine front and on the Will Ayrton drive front. So probably the worst situations in which a guy could come into Formula One from North America. There is kind of one tangential point on this that I think is worth making. It's because all of this was going on with the McLaren Senna negotiations. He was on that race-by-race -race deal giving kind of last-minute <laughs> responses on whether he'd drive. And this connects to the fact that we'll get on to later. There are question marks about how motivated McLaren was for Andretti to look good. Something Ron Dennis would have really needed early in the season is Michael Andretti performing well, because if you're negotiating with this superstar, if you say, well, we've got this guy who's doing a pretty good job, that inevitably weakens Senna's position. So I think that's just a small thing worth having in mind when we talk about some of the other things that may or may not have gone on during this, this McLaren year, particularly in that first half of the year when Senna was on that race-by-race -race deal. That's the most courteous way Ed's ever jumped ahead in the script, I think, in, in what's now almost six series of Bring Back V10s. So somebody's come back on their best behaviour. Now, we've we've already talked about the lack of testing working against Michael and, and we've talked about a lack of mileage in general. We've hinted that there was uh, restricted mileage in free practice. So this was an issue throughout the season in a, what was really a one-off situation in F1. As part of some last-minute rule changes for 1993 aimed at cost-saving, it was initially declared that all free practice sessions would be shortened to just 45 minutes. However, the teams then agreed that these sessions were too short, so they were extended to 90 minutes, but crucially, there would be a limit on the number of laps a driver could run. Drivers were limited to 23 laps in each morning practice session and 12 laps in qualifying, so just 35 laps per day. David, we only had this rule for 1993. Did this make any sense? No. <laughs> it sort of seemed like a good idea at the time. 
Now, I can never understand this sort of thing about um, testing. You know, you wouldn't build a fighter plane and then say, well, we'll only run it in uh, war situations. <laughs> and I don't understand really why testing is so limited. And certainly even back then, you sort of think if, if you built this thing, you've got to develop it. And back then, that was a daft sort of knee-jerk way of trying to save a bit of money that didn't work. And you know, like all these things never do, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then reality took over and they sort of went back to normal. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Michael's season got off to a nightmare start when his clutch failed on the grid in South Africa and after rejoining the race two laps down he got caught up in a collision with Derek Warwick which put him out but that incident was pretty minor in comparison to the crash that put him out of the Brazilian Grand Prix next time out Andretti qualified fifth but he was slow off the line which he said was due to a gear shift problem. He then tangled with Gerhard Berger's Ferrari, putting both into the barriers at the first corner, and Michael's car was flung up into the air in dramatic fashion. And I have to say, if I was answering the question at the start of the episode, what's, what's the first thing that comes to mind? For me, it's the image of Andretti's car flying through the air. Fortunately, it came back to rest on the right side of the barriers. Berger was furious about this, saying, I don't understand how something like this can happen. Andretti moved so violently, I had no time to react. Andretti said he was forced to move over by Carl Wenlinger, while Wenlinger said he didn't change his line on the approach to the first corner and that Andretti turned right into Berger. So, Ed, you've been able to watch this one back. How would you assess this crash? Yeah, well, it does all start, as you say, because of that bad start for Andretti, which was a bit of a running theme. I don't know whether that's just down to inexperience with standing starts, given a lot of what he'd done was rolling starts or just down to the capriciousness of the McLaren. But th there's actually pretty good footage, both overhead and behind uh, of this incident. And Fenninger does come a bit to the right, and then he sort of stops coming to the right. Andretti probably overreacts a little bit. I, I can see why why he did it. And But the problem is that Berger's steaming up on the right side. And you often see this at Interlagos because there's that bit of extra space on, on the right. Uh, it's kind of at that time it was sort of painted, but it was still asphalt. I think drivers on the outside often feel like they've got a bit more room. We saw that quite recently with Sainz and Norris had an incident at the start of a Brazilian Grand Prix with... Uh, I think it was Norris using some of the um, the extra space. So it was kind of a confluence of factors. So I wouldn't condemn Andretti for that one. It, it was sort of one of those things. They're called accidents for a reason, aren't they? But did have pretty bad consequences. But again, avoidable if Andretti had got off the grid better because then he wouldn't have been swamped by Venlinger and, uh, and Berger. But yeah, just one of those things, circumstances, the way that 
track sort of shapes into turn one often causes problems there but uh, spectacular consequences certainly one thing he did say in the interview i did with him was that to begin with in uh, after south africa in brazil and donington he said he was being tentative and for michael andretti to be tentative is the leopard changing his spots far too much and what he actually said was he was trying to sort of do it for damage limitation um and he said it went totally against the grain like i i don't know if you remember but in spain he actually finished but i think he was eighth there wasn't he um no he finished fifth that's right um and he said he was just tooling around it was pure damage limitation it went totally against the grain i was being tentative and that's easier said than done I was tentative with wendlinger in donnington too if i'd driven there like i drove manicure i think it'd have been okay so I think a lot of those kind of incidents were where he was maybe overthinking it a little bit and getting into trouble instead of following his natural instincts. I think people at the time thought he was being a bit of a wild man, but his attitude was, no, I wasn't. I was, I should have been, and I'd have probably been better off if I had been. Yeah, maybe being too careful. Let's come to Donington then, because Andretti was up the front again, qualifying sixth. But he then made what he still says today was his biggest mistake of the year when he tried to pass Wendlinger halfway around the opening lap and they collided. Speaking about this in 2018, Michael said, I got too greedy. I think he could have given me room, but he didn't. I still shoot myself on that one. That was my biggest mistake. The reason this one hurt so much was because Andretti said his car felt incredible in the morning warm-up where he'd been fourth quickest just behind Senna, who famously dominated this race in the wet Michael said, I never had a car that good in the wet. It felt like it was in the dry. I really think I could have raced with Senna. That's the worst part. I was right up there with him at the start and my car was so good. So David, we talked about the incidents and and maybe what was behind them, the tentative driving. How much of a difference could an early big result, perhaps in the wet at Donington, would that have made any difference to Michael's season overall? I think it would have made a huge difference. It's, it's interesting when you look at the lap times. Like he was three seconds off Ayrton in South Africa, um, <clears throat> second off him in Brazil, six tenths off him at Donington, seven tenths off him at Imola. You know, in, we look at those early races and we remember the shunts, but in actual performance terms, he wasn't a million miles off. And then it got a lot worse subsequently um, in in other, you know, the gap between Ayrton and qualifying. It was as if Michael's confidence had gone um, and he struggled a lot more. I think if he'd had a good result at Donington, I think that would have made a huge difference. If he could have been, what well, Ayrton dominated, didn't he? If he could have been top four, which was quite possible in those circumstances. But I think... You know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, aren't you? Because that was more the Michael we knew going for the gap with Carl. <clears throat> and funnily enough, the two of them qualified. They were often very close together on the grid at one stage in 93. Um, you know, I think that was Michael trying to be more like his old self. And it just, that one bit him for a different reason than the Burger one, let's say. But if he'd finished in the top four, that would have, I'm sure, made a great deal of difference. There's one point that I think is worth mentioning. The trouble was, for Michael, was the way that a lot of the media, particularly the Fleet Street guys, 
perceived him because, of course, Nigel Mansell had gone to IndyCar, taken his seat effectively, and was doing fantastically well um, and was beating Mario. So Nigel was the big hero. The other way around, the guy that had come from America wasn't doing such a hot job. And Sandy, his wife, was quite a colourful girl. Um, she got criticised a lot for wearing a leopard skin and everyone thought it was terribly funny that she bought a TV in South Africa that wasn't going to work in America. And It became sort of a, a fairly unpleasant sport amongst certain members of the media to just snipe at the Andrettis that became figures of fun, um, which also added to Michael's woes, I think, because he wasn't being treated very respectfully in certain quarters. So the whole thing was sort of gathering. It was like a ball that was rolling downhill and becoming bigger and bigger and bigger as his problems mounted. So I think it was a pretty difficult situation for him overall at that stage. And a good result would probably have shut a lot of that up. Andretti spun off at Imola next time out on a weekend where an active suspension glitch kept spearing him and Senna off the track, although his spin in the race was because he was trying to adjust his brake balance after the track had dried out and he couldn't reach it. His first points came in Barcelona with that lapped fifth place that we mentioned, and Michael called it a boring race. And to expand on what we've already discussed, uh, Michael said, uh, it was just the race I wanted, a nice boring day. I drove at seven tenths and just thought, bring it home, don't make a mistake. Now, as David mentioned, he went on to say, it's not my natural way to drive, but this time I really felt it was necessary. Quite honestly, I'm relieved. It feels as if a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. So, Ed, by this stage of all the incidents in the early races, was it just important to get a low-key, solid result on the board at last by whatever means possible? Well, there does come a point where you need to end a terrible run, even with a relatively modest result. I think he managed 36 racing laps across the first four races. So race distance, modest points finish, that was fine. But that, that said... Although it seemed important at the time, it didn't really change anything, did it? So perhaps it wasn't because it wasn't a turning point. Next race in Monaco went wrong, qualified poorly, contact with Barbatza. I think he was two laps down in the end. So there was no momentum that came out of that that Spain result. Perhaps it took a bit of pressure off. But when you look at how it fitted into that season, it, it just seemed to just to be a, a random thing that happened, if you see what I mean. And it wasn't a good enough result to be transformative. He described it to me as that was the worst result. That was the worst race of my year. I just had to finish. I had no fun there. I drove so conservatively. So I think he was probably under a fair bit of pressure from Ron to bring the car home. As Ed mentioned there, it was a disappointing Monaco Grand Prix weekend for Andretti. So then he headed to F1's only race in North America at the time, the Canadian Grand Prix. This is an interesting place to stop off in Andretti's season. It was the, it was the weekend that the BBC documentary being made about McLaren in 1993, which we've referenced before, this was their episode all about Andretti. Before we get into some of the slightly more juicy stuff that we saw behind the scenes in this episode, Andretti gave a good description about some of the troubles he was having adapting uh, to F1 from IndyCar. So let's have a listen to what he said back in 93. Big thing I had to get used to is uh, braking. For instance, you come into a corner, an Indy car will basically have about the same terminal speed as a as a Formula One car on the same straightaway. Um, but then it all changes when you come up to a corner because you you're uh, 
carrying a lot more weight in IndyCar, so you'll be braking, say, for instance, you'll be braking at a 200-yard marker. With a Formula One car, you're going to go to a 100 or a 75-yard marker, so you almost cut the braking distance in half. So uh, after 10 years of seeing things come at you at a certain pace and then braking in a certain place, now I have to tell my brain and reprogram it to say, hey, you got to go twice as far as you've done in the last 10 years. And, and that, that's another thing that's been tough to get used to. Andretti had spoken to the media earlier in the year about this transition as well, saying, I have to reprogram the way I drive. An IndyCar you can really throw around, especially in the slow corners, and it pays you back on time. But when I do that in the McLaren, I go slower. So that's a challenge I'm having to learn. Michael also said Nigel Mansell had it easier than him going uh, from F1 to IndyCar because of the level of confidence you need to have at the entry to a corner. In an IndyCar, you can go into a corner and it will tell you if the front's not going to stick. In an F1 car, though, it seems like you can't find that out unless you commit yourself. And that's been one of my problems. So, David, we've talked about Nigel briefly there and um, we'll definitely do Nigel Mansell's 1993 in a future series. But was Michael right that IndyCar to F1 was a harder transition than F1 to IndyCar? Yeah, I don't have any doubt about that. I think the only difference um, <clears throat> from the IndyCar would be learning to what to do and what not to do on an oval, which is a whole different art. I think what's interesting, to be fair to Michael, he hadn't did a 21.706 for... Um, eighth on the grid in Canada and Michael did a 22.229 so it was within half a second that was the closest I think he ever got to Ayrton and then of course his car didn't start and he, he started way down so it was kind of quite a disaster um, fastest race lap Ayrton did a 22.0 Michael all did a 22.9 but yeah I think I think he's absolutely right it was a much much trickier transition coming from North America to Europe than the other way around. It's also one of those areas where being up against Senna was such a big problem because in the past I've interviewed Giorgio Ascanelli, who was Senna's race engineer that season. He's one of the stars of the of the McLaren documentary, uh, a very sort of great character, but great insight into drivers. And he said one of the real strengths of Senna is Senna could almost do that bit where he disconnected his brain ignored the feel at turning and just committed even though everything that the car was telling him from experience would be that you're not going to make it round he could do it and then know the active would sort it out same thing Mansell could do so that that I think is probably the the biggest single problem with being up against Senna not just that you're up against someone mega but you're up against someone mega whose particular set of skills is well suited to exaggerating that advantage in the way these cars are also I think in he his feeling was that being with the best driver, you at least knew where you were. And Ayrton was very kind to him, as you know, you might well expect him to be with a teammate who wasn't going to challenge him. But it was interesting when he was... One of the things he said was, look at Ayrton, his biggest advantage is that he's driven these cars for 10 years. I think if he was, if he was in an Indy car, I'd have the edge over him. I don't think I'd have the edge he has over me here because you need more confidence to do that. But I think you'd have a little bit of an edge. I'd have had a little bit of an edge until he figured it out. To begin with, I just had to keep telling myself to have patience, and that was tough. When you've done well in something else, one race is a title, and bear in mind he'd won 
26 races and done 24 poles when he switched. It's a little frustrating because it's all new and every time, as we've said, every time I tried to drive hard originally, I just went slower. I had to get the techniques down. So, and then he said, I don't think there's more aggression in F1, but it's not as friendly. You hear myths on both sides. I'm with the guy that's been the greatest myth, there's been the greatest myth about, and that's it. And he's been great. He's been very, very helpful. And he's a nice guy. So in in some ways it was a disadvantage, of course, because it went or went so badly and the comparison didn't work out in his favour, did it? But at the same time, he was quite positive about the value of having Ayrton as a teammate. Had it been, say, <clears throat> Mika or Martin Brundle was um, at one stage possible for the McLaren, if it had been Michael and Martin, that would have been an interesting comparison. Yeah, it's quite telling, actually, that even today... In, in the rare interviews Michael has given about his time at McLaren, he's only got good things to say about Senna and, and their and their relationship. And as we've mentioned there, it's typical that actually the, the closest he got to Ayrton in qualifying was on a weekend in Canada where McLaren in general were, were nowhere. Now, also during that weekend in the documentary, we got a fascinating insight into Ron Dennis's feelings towards Andretti and how Ron felt he could deal with drivers Speaking about how the season had gone so far, Ron said he's disappointed in his own performances and of course I am too. As regards winning races, we're not doing the job we need to do to provide him with the car and engine and he's not doing the job he needs to do as a driver. You have to assume, almost give him the benefit of the doubt that he has the ability to win in Grand Prix racing and I think the big question mark is, is he going to do it in a McLaren? Is he going to do it this year? And is he going to get there fast enough to satisfy the needs of the team and the people who invest in him? Ron then gave a fascinating insight into how he felt he could deal with Andretti compared to drivers he'd had in the past. So let's have a listen to that. I think a relationship with Michael is uh, relatively simple compared to the relationship that one has with someone like Ayrton or in the past, Alan Prost or Nicky Lauda. In those instances, of course, you're dealing with drivers who have achieved their goals, the goals that we set for ourselves, they've won Grand Prix, they've won World Championships. What, what develops then in those, those individuals is an extremely strong and difficult to cope with character. And uh, with someone like Michael, for example, he's yet to prove and therefore it's much easier to, to handle because you can, uh, you're obviously the boss, you've got the power and uh, you can administer that in, in many ways. Ed, what do you make of what Ron said there? Did he take the right approach, do you think, to handling Andretti? Well, you can just about see where he's coming from, being generous, but Andretti wasn't you know, a 22-year-old rookie non-entity, was he? He was a 30-year-old IndyCar champion. It's a matter of record that Andretti and Ron Dennis didn't see eye to eye on anything. So, almost by definition, it, it's not uh, the right. It's not the right approach. And we know that Ron Dennis has this history with drivers. Some he worked well with, others less so. And I don't think he's necessarily the ultimate team boss to have. And what he said there, I think, did sort of sum up probably what wasn't a great approach. At the same time. I think Andretti needed to accept that he'd moved into a very different environment. He was effectively in the Andretti family team in car at Newman Haas, where he'd been for the previous few years. They only expanded to a two-car team 
because Mario would only give his blessing to Michael coming in, attempts to add a second car previously, had been resistant. So there were issues on, on both sides. But based on what Ron Dennis had said, he also had to understand that he wasn't dealing with a a driver who hadn't achieved anything in their, in their career. Andretti was an unusual signing because he'd had this decade-long tremendous success in in the US. So he probably needed to refine his approach somewhat. But I think you just got two completely different disconnected wavelengths there that that probably were never going to fit together well and not well placed to, to get the best out of a driver like Michael Andretti, certainly. I think Michael also... Um, <clears throat> Mario used to jump on the racer, as he called Concord. Mario was always whizzing back because he had a very busy um, career, was doing IndyCar races as well. <clears throat> Michael tended to do the same thing, but I think... And I don't think Michael ever agreed it was true, but I think Michael made a major mistake not settling in the UK or in Europe. And he was adamant that he never missed a test, um, that he probably tested as much as Mika did. He was always there when they needed him, and I'm sure that's true. And I think he had quite a good relationship with the team on the lower level. But the fact that he used to go home created a kind of disconnect. And I think certainly in Ron's mind, that was a sign that he wasn't taking it seriously enough. Because Mika would be in the factory every day, you know, learning more. And the fact that Michael and Sandy would jump on the Concorde and go home and then come back for each race didn't sit well with Ron at all. And I think that certainly was another thing that gave him, that damaged his image, if you like with certain um, areas of the media because they didn't think he was serious enough. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll discuss that, uh, the the constant travel back and forth to America in a bit more depth later on. Now, in this episode of the documentary in Canada, we also see a conversation between Ron and Michael where Ron does come across a little more compassionate and he tells Andretti to race the way that you want to race and we'll just live with the consequences. If you fall off, you fall off. That didn't matter in Canada, as we've discussed. Andretti's car died on the grid and he rejoined once the race had already started. But perhaps it played a part in his charge through the field next time out in France, where after qualifying 16th and making a bad start, he raced back through to 6th, so he's in the points again. But the big story from this weekend is a claim Michael and Mario have both made since on a few occasions Uh, claiming that Michael's car's beacon was switched off in qualifying so the active suspension system didn't know where it was on track so the ride height was going up and down at the wrong points of the circuit. In an interview with veteran US journalist Gordon Kirby years later, Andretti said, I know who it was, someone who didn't want me there at all. He shut my beacon off and my car was just lost. Andretti claimed in that same interview that Ron Dennis said he wanted to drop him after this race and that Michael fought race to race to stay in the seat as long as he did after that. Now, David, you were there at the time. Were you aware of any rumours of this sort of thing happening at the time? And if if the relationship is already at this point, and that there's all of this going on behind the scenes, were we already in a stage by now where this was terminal? I had no idea that there, there was anything of that nature going on. In fact, for me, Manicor was the one race where the real Michael Andretti turned up because um, just before that little twiddly chicane at the end of the lap, 
was a fast right-hander, and Michael passed J.J. Leto, Ricardo Petrezzi, Rubens Barrichello, and some guy called Jean de Lacy there. And to me, that was um, that was Michael, the real Michael. He still finished a chunk behind Ayrton, but that was a good fight through the field, and that was the one race, I think, in which he showed his capability. So that's actually quite sad if if that's true about the beacon being turned off. It would certainly <coughs> explain why any qualified 16th, um, 1.4 seconds off it. And yeah, I mean, that that was his best race. And it was the aggressive Michael who could pull off these moves that, you know, that was what I would have expected him to be doing right from the start of the year, to be honest. The one thing we should probably remember is that it wasn't unusual for things to go wrong with active of this nature. Obviously, everyone remembers the Williams active work really well, but there were a lot of problems that arose with active suspension systems. Sometimes it was down to this thing of the computer losing track of where they were on circuit. So it's perfectly plausible this could have happened entirely by accident. But it, it does seem that it did happen. For, for me, it's a question of what's actually the cause. Did someone really deliberately switch it off or was it just something that happened? I mean, why would you? When Michael's already struggling, why would you need to? Yeah. I can understand why somebody getting hammered every weekend would start perceiving things like that. But, I mean, certainly I don't ever remember hearing anything at the time. That doesn't mean anything. It just means that they, if it happened, it got well kept within the team. But I, I tend to agree with Ed on that. Active did enough things on its own, didn't it? <laughs> Without people needing to... To twiddle with it. Just ask anyone who drove the Lotus active suspension uh, car at that time how, how random that could be and uh, you get a good idea of what it could be like. Yeah, there are only a few teams that ever really mastered it before uh, before it was banned. There were more early race incidents, unfortunately, in Britain and Germany. At Silverstone, Andretti went off on the marbles at the first corner when he tried to go around the outside and he said that was because in IndyCar racing, the track was swept before the race so offline would be cleaner. After he collided with Gerhard Berger early on at Hockenheim, which led Ron Dennis to lament what he called another mistake, Autosports' Nigel Roebuck made an interesting point in defence of Andretti. Nigel wrote, The MP48 is clearly a nervous and relatively unforgiving car. Michael has been endlessly criticised for the number of mistakes he has made this year, but what should be borne in mind is that Senna too has probably spun more in 1993 than in the five previous seasons put together. So David, was there any validity to that theory from, from Nigel? Is it overlooked that maybe this car was more difficult than, than we give it credit for because of how well Senna did dragging results out of it? Yeah, I think that's actually a, a pretty valid comment. I mean, Nigel and I both have very similar views on Michael. Um, one interesting point where you were talking about the Lotus head, the footwork, of course, had McLaren's system on it that year, active ride, and that was very difficult. I think it took them until Hungary before they found its sweet spot. So you were constantly trying to find something that wasn't always available. And yes, I think that was a very nervous car that replay, repaid Ayrton's confidence. But in Michael's case, he often got bitten by it. Would have been interesting if it had been, if they just had passive cars that year. Because that was another, if, if you like, that was 
Michael's version of learning to drive on an oval that, man, that Nigel had when he went to America coming the other way. The thing Michael had to learn was to trust an active car and get the best out of it. So, yeah, I think that's a reasonable um, point that Nigel raised there. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. By now, the rumours about Mika Hakkinen getting a race for McLaren were building and Dennis fueled those stories with a slightly cryptic comment given to German media which was picked up by US publication Sports Illustrated for a feature it ran on Andretti back in 1993. Dennis said to the German press, As a company, we pride ourselves on fulfilling our legal and moral commitments to drivers. If any driver did not complete a season in a McLaren car for which he was contracted, it would only happen by mutual agreement. Ron then had to clarify what he meant once this quote got out adding, I don't think Michael's enjoying Formula One and it's probably hurting his career. If he chose to talk to me about going back to America, I wouldn't wave a contract at him. It was that fact that I was trying to convey to him rather than the opposite that I'm considering replacing him. David, I don't know if you heard that wrong clarification at the time, but was this an odd thing to say? or Was was Ron almost encouraging Michael to look for a return to IndyCar? Well, that Sports Illustrated feature was very interesting because Ron got his knickers in a twist big time because he gave, I think it was Bruce Newman, he gave him full access to Michael and then the guy wrote what was a pretty straightforward, honest piece about all the problems Michael had faced. The general feeling was that there'd been a level of naivety in McLaren where they'd expected a glowing kind of story and they got a very truthful one and Ron's feeling was that they'd been betrayed by this guy who'd had access and abused it I think that's it's a little bit like having your cake and eat it isn't it maybe he was certainly he was thinking of running Mika but it's sort of instead of saying we were going to fire the guy saying we were giving him the chance to walk away I can I can hear Ron saying that to be honest but um I think that just showed where things were going by then. But, I mean, we'll get into some other things, obviously, um, about Michael's position in Formula One with McLaren that I expect we'll get to later. But I think that was a sign that, okay, we don't really see this changing. 
and it might be a nicer way for you to leave if it was seen to be your decision than ours. So I think he was perhaps trying to be a little bit gentle by then. He was certainly very angry about the the tone of the, the Sports Illustrated story, but most people at the time felt, well, how did you expect it to be any different? Yeah, that is, that is a good read. You can find it online. I would, I'd recommend people go go looking for it. Spa next time out was another race to forget when Andretti's car shut itself off during his pit stop, but things finally went right at Monza, where according to Mario Andretti, Michael only got to race because Mario begged Ron to let him do the Italian Grand Prix. Andretti started ninth, and things looked to be going awry again when he spun on the second lap, but after coming in for a lengthy pit stop to have grass removed from his side pods, Andretti climbed back up to third, of course helped by some attrition along the way, as you'd expect in this era. So Ed, Michael's finally on the podium, uh, the only the only time it's sort of course happened in his F1 career. Did this result prove anything? Did it suggest that perhaps Andretti deserved a bit more time? Not necessarily in itself. You never know what effect a podium finish might have on a driver, but I suspect for someone used to winning like Andretti, a third place wouldn't have been transformative, but it was a good step. It, it was, in many ways, a, a good drive. The disappointing thing was he had he had an early spin and dropped down to Larson and came back through. So he, he caught he, he, part, he got ahead of uh, Ricardo Patrese, for example, in the second Benetton. That was, that was pretty good, but... Even if you look at the lap times, he his fastest lap was four tenths off Michael Schumacher in the Benetton, which had engine parity at that time. But Schumacher hadn't even made it quite to half distance, so extra fuel. So I, I don't think it was stunningly, stunningly fast, shall we say? It, it kind of leaves a little bit of a a question mark in the air, doesn't it? Is was that the breakthrough? I have a sneaking suspicion it might have been another Spain type thing where you think, oh, that's the result he needed. And it, it just wasn't. But probably the fact he had to come back through did allow Andretti to be a little bit more attacking and not not drive in a contained way. So maybe that would have changed things. But yeah, I, I don't think that result in itself necessarily meant that. And maybe the fact that he had a pretty good idea that might be the last race in F1 played a part in it, his improved performance. We'll never really know. It's just nice that at least he got on the podium and with the Andretti family connection to Italy... I'm pleased he at least got a half-decent result during this uh, unsuccessful foray. Uh, I, I totally agree with that. Just one small point. Interestingly, Spa, Ayrton qualified in 49.934 for fifth. Michael did 51.833 for 14th. But Ayrton's fastest race lap was a 54.1, and Michael's was a 54.6. So... You know, if there was half a second between them on their best days kind of thing, that was, if he could have been doing that all year, I think that would have possibly made a difference. And you're right, being third at Monza was nice, wasn't it? But it wasn't transformative. There were rumours over the Monza weekend that McLaren was considering putting Hakkinen in for the final races of the season and also speculation that Andretti was looking at a return to IndyCar for 1994. McLaren denied all of this, but then before the next race, it announced Hakkinen was replacing Andretti for the upcoming Portuguese Grand Prix. We've done a full episode about that whole weekend in Portugal because there was so much going on, including Mika's brilliant McLaren debut. So go back and check that out for a bit more depth on that. 
After the McLaren news, um, very quickly, basically at the same time, Andretti signed for Chip Ganassi in IndyCar for 1994. And when that was announced, Michael said the decision was taken because of timing, as McLaren couldn't give him an answer on 1994 yet, and he didn't want the Ganassi offer to go away. This lines up with some comments Mario Andretti made to us uh, about Michael's perhaps impatience to have his future resolved. So let's hear Mario's explanation to Ed of what went on here, which in does include some criticism of the decision Michael took uh, in Mario's perspective. Ron Dennis says that, well, uh, Michael, I, I think from Monza on, I'm going to put Mika in your place. And I cannot guarantee that I will pick up uh, your option until November to see what Ayrton was going to do. And uh, so Michael, and I beg, uh, Ron to keep him at least for Monza, and he did, and obviously at least was a podium. And uh, I blame Michael for not being patient. If I was him, I would have waited, you know, to see how it played out because uh, I felt if Michael could get one season under his belt, you know. But again, I blame Michael for not being patient, and uh, figure, you know what, I I need a proper, you know. Uh, opportunity here and he would have had it a second year uh, because then Ayrton did go to Williams and uh, and I thought again you know Michael would have got the job done if, uh, if he was would have given the proper opportunity and if he would have been patient enough to undergo that season and then figure you know what now at least I have knowledge of the circuit and then the thing once he would have been just the two of them, you know, uh, was sent out of the way, then then it would have been full effort behind him. But he gave that up, and it's unfortunate. So that's what Mario thinks. Michael's view, which he gave to the McLaren website in 2018, was nobody was going to touch me with a 10-foot pole. There was no way. I was over it. I loved IndyCar racing, and I just went that way. So, David, how do you view this? Do you agree with Mario that Michael should have been willing to wait it out and then obviously take a seat alongside Hackenham for 94 once Senna was gone. Well, it's quite interesting. I remember my uh, Mario once saying, Michael was a money driver, as if it, you know, that was the worst thing you could be. <laughs> and then I just read a quote, I think literally this morning, it might have been on your, your thing where he actually said, so was I. But I think I think Michael uh, Mario was slightly disappointed that Michael was sort of driven by the money more than anything else. But I do think that's true that the Ganassi... Ganassi was going IndyCar with Reynard, don't forget, they were coming in. And I do agree that with, with Michael's feeling that if I don't go for that, I could end up with nothing. Because, of course, there was all the uncertainty about what Ayrton was going to be doing for 1994, and nobody had any idea at that stage which way that wind was going to blow. There are all sorts of rumours, obviously. But if Ayrton had stayed and Michael hadn't taken the Ganassi deal, because Ron kept saying, I'm, uh, there was a quote with Ron saying, I'm absolutely sure Michael Andretti will be back in Formula One. And he was actually a little bit like, I'm sure Ayrton Senna will drive a McLaren again. I've just, just thought, um, I think that was kind of a palliative comment to boost Michael. So I don't think Michael himself felt he had much choice. And that barge pole thing was quite interesting. 
Um, yeah, I don't think he thought he had much of a future in Formula One. So this is what's available. If you don't grab it now, somebody else will. And what will you end up with? And let's also think what the narrative would have been had he stayed on in the McLaren Peugeot in 94. Still there for the 95 car. It's a long time before McLaren gets good. It's not until 97 they start winning again. So I suspect it's it's not like he gave away a winning car or anything. This was the worst time to be at McLaren in, in, in that sort of era. So I think that would have just, all it would have done is just made the Michael Andretti is rubbish in F1, the, <laughs> the, the slightly unfair narrative, just grow and grow. So I, I can't see what good would have come from it. Yeah, that's a really good point. If Michael thought his 93 car blew up a lot and broke down, imagine if he'd had to drive with the Peugeot engine. Uh, let's get into one of the big declarations that's always made about Andretti's F1 season. And we've already talked about it a little bit. The, the, the fact that he didn't move to Europe and commuted from America on Concord. Michael's view on this uh, is people love to say that. And I think Ron liked to use that as an excuse. I could be there in six hours because of Concord. And I always stayed on European time when I was in the US. I could get to Woking almost as quickly as Senna could from Monaco. It wouldn't have done anything, he means moving to Europe, and when I was there, they would tell me I had to leave. So what was I going to do? I just laugh when I see that. People are so clueless. And according to Mario Andretti, Michael was close to buying a house in the south of France when he lost his drive, so apparently he was prepared to move to Europe. But, Ed, we've already heard a bit of what David thinks about this. Do you think living in Europe would have made a difference? Not necessarily to Michael himself. I think the the living in US criticism is regularly used, but I'm not sure purely in terms of what Michael was doing is necessarily fair. But what David talked about earlier with the the optics, the impression it gave, the the kind of need to really embed yourself in the team, that, that was an area where perhaps Michael Andretti did lose out. And if he'd been local or localish to, to McLaren he could have spent more time there that might have also been better for him in terms of making it harder for Mika Hakkinen to get his feet so firmly under the table there but I, I always think that the greatest value it has is it's almost the metaphorical sense in showing that I'm just not sure his heart was 100% in it I do have a suspicion that perhaps he needed to go to F1 a few years earlier rather than as a 30 year old who had a couple of kids at that point it's purely an impression I can't claim to have deep psychological impact in, insight in, into him but it comes back to this thing of I just don't know if F1 was really Michael's dream thinking back to that hesitation before signing the deal yeah Concord was quick six hours door to door he said so that that's fine and yeah there's no evidence that any he ever turned down testing or missed anything specifically but I think it's almost what it represents more than the reality of it that, that's the key so I kind of feel the criticism has foundation and Michael's defense of it has foundation depending on uh, how you're looking at things I'm not entirely sure on his maths though I mean I, I never got to fly on Concorde but I have flown from Heathrow to Monaco and I'm I'm pretty sure Senna would if they left their house at the same time I'm sure Senna would get to Woking while Michael was probably still in the air on Concord so not quite sure about that one now gentlemen I hate to be a smart Alec but I have flown on Concord and I thought it was quicker than six hours but never mind well that's door to door isn't it so that includes your check-in time and you're uh, you're getting to the uh getting to the airport I guess as well but uh yeah it's uh it was certainly um, it's certainly much more practical than it would be today with Concorde long since retired. It's it's a different story, admittedly, and everything else. But it does make me think of Rick Mears 
and how he close how close he came to coming F1 and he he took the decision that he didn't want to locate to Europe he didn't want to live here and he was happy where he was and I wonder how much of having the Andretti name was the factor in Michael deciding I'd better give it give it a shot that's a great chance for me to plug our IndyCar podcast as well as uh, in the build-up to the Indy 500 uh, Jack Benyon and J.R. Hildebrand had a chance to chat with Rick Mears and he did talk about uh, considering F1 and go into a bit of detail about why he turned down Bernie Eccleston's advances uh, from Brabham. Back to Andretti though, he's mentioned in a few different interviews that he felt the move to F1 nearly ruined his career. He told Gordon Kirby, it was the worst time of my career. It was a program that was destined to fail from day one. It was a joke. I learned a lot about how dishonest people can be. I grew up that year. I went in very naive and I came out a lot more aware of the real world. From that standpoint, I think it was very good. But other than that, it just about ruined my career. Now, Ed, as we discussed, Michael went back to IndyCar racing where he won plenty of races over the years that followed, but he never got another championship. Do you think the move to F1 did damage his career in any way in the end? It's actually quite a an interesting case because it didn't have a huge impact on the way his career played out because he had that year with with Ganassi won a couple of races including inevitably Toronto where he always seemed to win but then he was back in at Newman Haas so I think it almost really only affected 93 and 94 but that that is quite a big caveat because I would say with a high level of confidence he'd have won the IndyCar title in 93 and he would 100% have been competitive and strong and a big threat at the Indianapolis 500, which, of course, he never won. So I think Michael feels he'd have won that race because he would have done a better job than Mansell at that final restart when Fittipaldi and Leindijk passed him. Although, of course, because he's Michael Andretti at Indy, I presume something random would have happened to have, have denied him given <laughs> his ill luck in in that race. But it's it's really curious that it only really locally shapes that. So yeah, we might say he's a two-time IndyCar champion and he won the Indy 500. But beyond that, I don't think it really really changed his career. Okay, that second title and a good shot of winning Indy, that's a high price to pay for one F1 podium finish, isn't it? But I think it is curious how how light the impact really is because it didn't change the course of his career. It was like, it was like a two-year detour rather than completely sending him off in a, in a different direction. Yeah, it's a really good point, you know, two years later he's back at Newman Haas where he would have been anyway um, and yeah there were race wins it's, it's a story it's a debate for a different time but obviously I'm, I'm quite familiar with the 95 season having watched it back several times uh, due to that year's champion from Canada and Michael and Newman Haas were incredibly fast that year but, but quite unreliable so you know going to F1 didn't change his bad luck in 95 and by after that this is a massive detour. Newman Haas started playing around with a change of chassis and that sort of thing. And it just never quite came together. Let's hear from Mario one more time as he gave Ed some fascinating insight into other opportunities Michael could have had to come over to F1 before and after his McLaren stint. He had a chance of getting to Williams before he got into McLaren, but for a lot less money. So for Michael, it was always the money. He always raised for that, which is fine. You know, it, uh, I mean, I did that too, in that sense, because you should, but that was not the, the primary, my primary objective. I wanted to be with uh, competitive equipment. That was number one. 
and uh, then the money comes later anyway with results. So that's the way I looked at it. But you know, Michael was bird in hand. You know, he was. That's the way he looked at things, and uh, and that's it. You know, he's happy with that. And uh, uh, I look at uh, what might have been again, like you said, that um, it would have been very, very different. And we, uh, I spoke about it with Frank. Frank liked us, you know, and he, I was, you know, he would ask me about Michael. Frank would have gave him, Frank would have been decent with Michael. It would have been good. Where uh, Ron Dennis was not. And I'll say that to his face. Um, and the other part that uh, I, uh, I asked him uh, not to sign a long-term contract when he came back because I said there might be other opportunities and uh, and he signed a contract with uh, with Carhaus for three years the following year he had a chance to go to Ferrari and uh, and the problem I spoke with Carl says if he has the opportunity I'll let him go well he didn't he asked Ferrari for a lot of money to release Michael and they because Michael was demanding a lot of money too, but the Montezemolo was not willing to pay Carl. So that opportunity went out the window. It would have been 95 on. Interesting stuff from Mario there. And we're very grateful that uh, he gave Ed the time recently to discuss this. But David, let's explore those two prospects he mentioned. Michael Andretti going to Williams earlier in the 1990s or Ferrari in 1995, would either of those have been better options for him than McLaren in 93? I don't know. I think that's really interesting. I don't remember the Ferrari thing. Um, I do remember Alonso Jr., who I referred to earlier, who was a big fan of his as well. He was involved with possibilities at Williams and testing for the Modestoril in 91, that didn't go well at all. And they had, I've, I've recently re been reading Al's biography, and that was really not a happy occasion for him to, to test at Williams. So I'd have been kind of surprised if Williams, uh, I mean, I, I, I saw the, the thing where Mario said they got on very well with Frank and Patrick, Interesting. Michael in a, a 91 FW14 would have been quite something, I think. Um, the Ferrari thing, if it didn't work at McLaren, I don't see any reason why it would have worked any better at Ferrari, to be honest, especially with the language situation as well. I mean, OK, <clears throat> by the 90s, every Formula One team had English as its basic language, but I, I would have thought... Ferrari would probably be even more difficult than McLaren. So I'm not really sure how that would have worked out. I don't think Michael would have gone to Mons and stuck it on pole like his old man did in 82. That's for sure. Also, if it's 95, you'd have to assume Michael Schumacher still comes in for 96. So if, if Andretti survives the first season, uh, does he then end up getting you know destroyed and cast aside, really, into the number two role? when Schumacher arrives. I think we know the answer to that, don't we? <laughs> it's not that difficult to work out, is it? We're going to finish on a theory Andretti 
has about why he was brought over to F1 and why he thinks he wasn't given a fair shot. In 2018, he hinted to Marshall Pruitt that he felt he was used because of where he was in his IndyCar career. But in an earlier interview with Gordon Kirby, he'd gone into more detail. Andretti said that he felt he was screwed over in a deliberate attempt to damage the appeal of IndyCar racing. Remember, as we've mentioned, this was when F1 had just lost its world champion, Nigel Mansell, to the US Series. Andretti said the international appeal of the kart series was strong in the mid-90s and Bernie Eccleston was worried about our series. I think I was used as a tool. I think Bernie and Ron were in it together. I think they wanted to discredit me because I was one of the big guys in indie cars and they wanted to make me look like a wanker so they could say we couldn't make it in Formula One. That's what I believe happened. Ed put that theory to Mario uh, in their chat. And Mario didn't seem to massively agree, I must say. He said he faced similar things, but it never bothered him. And he said you have to earn F1's respect and that while Michael didn't feel welcome, he should have overlooked that. So I'm going to finish by just putting this out there to both of you. And David, we'll come to you first. What do you think about that theory from Michael? Is there any chance that was what was going on here? I think that has massive credibility especially when you look at Jacques Villeneuve in 1995, going to Williams in 1996. <laughs> I think that's a ridiculous theory. I just don't see that at all. Why? No. Bernie and Ron agreeing on something at that time? <laughs> Come on, in 93, that was when Ron and Ken and Frank figured out what Bernie had been doing for a while with things, and Ron and Bernie were at loggerheads for a start. And they're not going to come up with some arcane plan like that. To, I don't think they bothered that much about IndyCar. Yeah, yeah, OK, Nigel had gone to IndyCar, but they still had Ayrton Senna and Michael Schumacher coming through in F1. No, I don't see that at all. I think that's quite a sad theory, personally. Yeah, I, I agree on that. I think it's the theory of someone who perhaps has never entirely come to terms with what happened in Formula 1. Michael Andretti will know, like we all do. He he had phenomenal ability as a driver. I've no doubt there was the driver in there to be a success in Formula 1, certainly be a race winner and be far better than he showed. And there were reasons for it not coming off. And yes, circumstances played their part. And Michael Andretti's own approach, I believe, played its part as well. Maybe the timing was off. There's There's so many reasons why it didn't happen. However, one of them was undoubtedly not this grand conspiracy. There's no question. Certainly... Andretti will have been kind of used in, in, in that way and people have cited it. And when Villeneuve signed for Williams, people were warning, well, look how bad Michael Andretti was showing how rubbish uh, car drivers are or whatever. But Villeneuve showed that that obviously wasn't the case. And I think those who are familiar with Formula One, with IndyCar, with Michael Andretti know how good he was. So I think everybody knows it was a specific set of circumstances. But yeah, I just think it's a driver not quite coming to terms with everything that happened there. And And I just wonder if it was at heart, down to the fact that Andretti didn't have the quite approach, didn't quite gel with the culture. Maybe he knew that was always likely to happen with his reluctance to go there. I think that's the starting point for what happened there. But this idea, they think, hey, let's sign this guy from the US and make him look stupid. And the idea Rod Dennis would participate in that, the idea Bernie Eccleston would be able to make, it's. It, I think it's just a, a, a nonsense. I make that three Jacques Villeneuve mentions now in, in the first episode of the series. Only one that I was responsible for as well. And they're all positive as well. So 
we're off to a great start there. David, just before we finish, as I said, you were there. You were you were interviewing Michael during the season, as, as you've referenced. Any final thoughts, really, on, on on why this? Is there anything else you think that we haven't covered, perhaps, and why this this didn't work out? And I, I have to say, I agree with you both. And why would Ron Dennis hobble one of his own cars when he still views McLaren as an incredible rival to Williams? He's got a championship he wants to win. But is there any overarching theme that you'd kind of finish off on, on just, just why it didn't work? I think, as, as usual, most irritatingly, but Mr. Straw has summarised the situation extremely well. Oh, no. More than anything, I suspect it was timing that just wasn't right. Um, I will always remember Michael Andretti in his IndyCar pomp. Um, he was an incredible driver, and so was Al. And watching them in the races and how aggressive Michael was was always wonderful. And actually, the nicest thing about all of this, I think, was in 1994, I was at the Reynard factory watching the Surfers Paradise race when Michael won in the rain with the new Reynard. So, you know, it was my buddies at Reynard had won again another series on their debut. It was just nice to see that Michael was back in his element. And I think it will forever be one of those what might have been stories. Um, but like I said, I don't think we ever saw the real Michael Andretti in Formula One, sadly. But I admired the fact that he came over and gave it a shot. It just didn't work. And just for those who might doubt Michael Andretti, just because he only won one car driver and never won the Indy 500, only three drivers have won more Indy car races than him. AJ Foyt, Mario Andretti, Scott Dixon. That's elite companies in with a great driver. Let's not consider the F1 Michael Andretti was the, was the real Michael Andretti. Absolutely. Well, that's a fitting way to end it then. That's the incredible story of Michael Andretti's 1993 F1 season, not IndyCar season, as I've written in my notes there. Hopefully we've done it justice and uncovered a few gems along the way that you might not have heard before or had forgotten about in the three decades since that season. This this episode has been high on my list for a long time for us to do, so that's why we're kicking off a new series with such a big episode. Um, thank you so much to David and to Ed for joining us to kick off Series 6. And of course, thanks to all of you out there listening to the show and patiently waiting since the end of Series 5 for us to come back. Next time, we're jumping forward to 2004's Belgian Grand Prix, where Kimi Raikkonen took his first of four victories around Spa on the day Michael Schumacher won his seventh and final World Championship. The Athletic. <laughs>